Thank you, Sarah. Hey, friends, keep those uh, Bibles open at Genesis 48 and 49. We're going to be working through uh, that passage. It's been a big week. Um, Everyone knows what's happened this week. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II has died, very sad. Um, 96 years old, 70-year reign, the longest reign in Britain's history. Now, um, I've got to confess at this point, I don't know if any of you are like me, but I've never really thought much about the Queen or thought much of her. Like, you know, she's over there. She doesn't really do that much to kind of me and has to do much for me. She doesn't really affect my life at all. Uh, like, I wouldn't really miss her if, you know, if she wasn't there, if, they, if, if the monarch wasn't ruling Australia and that kind of thing. That was kind of my attitude until the start of this year, right? The start of this year when everyone was celebrating her 70-year reign. I think it was in February-ish. And, uh, and I, I found out something really exciting. I found out that she is actually a faithful Christian. Well, she was a faithful Christian. And it, it was kind of unexpected the way it happened. Uh, my wife brought home a picture book about Queen Elizabeth II. I thought I brought it in just to show you all. So, uh, so this book she got from Kurong. And I was like, why are you buying a book from Kurong about Queen Elizabeth? Turns out it's because she's a Christian. Right? So there you see her looking very good in her crown and scepter there. Now, uh, I'm going to read you a, a page from it. All right? I'm going to read you a page. And, uh, and this is what I learned when I read this book. So uh, it kind of talks about some of the different things, great things that she's done. She's done a lot of amazing stuff. We should be very thankful for her. But I'm going to read you a bit here towards the end. It says, whether it's been a good year or a bad year, sorry, there is one thing that qu- the Queen has always done. Every Christmas day at 3 p.m., she's given a speech and millions and millions of people in the UK and Commonwealth have tuned their TVs on to watch. And then the next page, uh, she gives a bunch of quotes uh, that she's given in some of these Christmas speeches. I'm going to read you a few of them, because they're, they're cracking quotes. So in 2002, she said, I rely on my faith to guide me. I know that the only way to live my life is to try to do what is right, to give of my best in all that the day brings, and to put my trust in God. 2011, God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. And my favourite is from 2014. It's going to come up on the screen because I think it's really good. For me, the life of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, whose birth we celebrate today, is an inspiration and an anchor in my life. And that whole idea of anchor, an anchor for life, that's really important. Because whatever anchors your life, whatever you anchor your life on, that's what keeps you going. It's what keeps you steady and grounded. It's what gives you security, confidence, hope. In other words, it's what we put our faith in. That's what we just read in Hebrews 11. We read, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So our anchor in life is what we put our faith in. And if that anchor fails, bad stuff happens, right? Because if that's what's happened to your security, what's happened to your um, you know, confidence, all that kind of thing, it, it's gone and you become lost. You're not sure what to do or why you should keep going. So the question then for us is, what is, what is our confidence? What is your confidence what is your faith in what is your anchor what is your anchor in life 
And these chapters here are going to help us think about our anchor. What it shouldn't be, maybe what it should be. And because as we see Jacob give blessings to his sons, we see where he has put his anchor, where his faith is. And we also see where some of his sons have put their anchor. So let's get into it. Jacob's final words. Last week, Genesis 47, we saw that Jacob is about to die. He's about to die. And yet in today's passage, in verse 1, we read that it's sometime after he was about to die. So he's even sicker than he was when he thought he was going to die. So he's very sick, right? He's, he's, it's probably the last few days of his life. And so he wants to spend the rest of his life giving his final words to each of his sons. Now, we place a lot of emphasis and we really value people's last words. I've never been in the presence of someone who's given me their last words, but I'm sure it's very deep and powerful. And we, we remember them for those words uh, and they are very precious to us, very sentimental. But for Jacob, here's what's interesting. His final words are not just sentimental. They're actually prophecy. I don't know if you noticed, uh, verse 1 of chapter 49, it says, if you got it there, Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. See, earlier in Genesis, God actually calls Abraham a prophet. And similar thing is happening here with Jacob. Jacob is acting and speaking as a prophet. And so the blessings he passes on are super significant because they impact the future of God's people and God's promises as a whole, what's going to happen there. Now, some of the sons, we didn't read all the way through all 12 sons. Some of them are very short, one verse, one-liners, kind of a bit funny. A couple of my favorites. Ready? I'm going to read some of them to you. You can go and read the rest at home. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. That's pretty good, right? I mean, if I was Asher, I'd be like, yeah, I like food. This is, this is looking okay. Um, Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. I mean, these are good blessings, right? I'd take some of them. But there's a few of Jacob's sons that get a lot of airtime. They get a big, long chunk of blessing of verses. And a lot of really significant stuff is said uh, that, that has big impacts about the future. So we're going to focus in on them, on three of them. The first one we're going to look at is Joseph, what Jacob says to Joseph. second one is Reuben. And the third one is Judah. That's where we're going. Joseph, Reuben, Judah. So first, Jacob's final words to Joseph. This is chapter 48. Now, the first thing Jacob does uh, with Joseph is he adopts Joseph's sons as his own. So look at verse 5. Jacob says, Now then, Joseph, your two sons, born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh, that's Joseph's two sons, will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. So Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph is number 11. That's two. You get what I mean though, right? 11. Uh, but he, he, number 11, Joseph, he was the favourite. Born to the wife whom he most loved, Rachel. And he's also the golden child, right? He's, he's saved the whole known world. That's, that's a pretty good thing, right? I'm, I'm not surprised he's the favourite. Uh, and so Jacob wants to give Joseph more blessing than his other 11 sons. Wants to give him double the blessing. And the way he does this is by effectively duplicating Joseph. Joseph almost switches out and they, he gets both his sons in instead. So Jacob effectively has 
13 sons now. And by doing this, Jacob is giving Joseph a double blessing, a double portion of the inheritance. What's interesting, though, is that the standard practice in Bible times is that the double portion goes to the firstborn. But Joseph's number 11. That's a fair way down the pecking order. Why is he doing that? Well, actually, we're going to think about a bit about that when we get to Reuben. But the rest of chapter 48 is Jacob blessing uh, these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, blessing him with this double portion. Now, it's an it's a ironic story, and I wonder if you kind of got some deja vu as we were reading through. I'm gonna, let's read through it again. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 of 48. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Deja vu, anyone? We've got two sons. We've got a dad who's old, who wants to give his blessing, can't see very well. I hope you kind of remember this, because we looked at it about eight weeks ago, right? So I'm hoping this is ringing some bells. Uh, this is sounding a lot like Jacob and his brother Esau when Isaac, old man Isaac, went to bless his two sons. In that story, it was kind of a bit shifty and shady, but what happened eventually was that the younger son was blessed. Jacob was blessed. The older son, you'd think would be get double, would get more stuff, he's actually going to serve the younger, be lesser than the other. So, we're getting some deja vu here. What is going to happen next? Let's read it. Come on, guys. It's exciting stuff. So, let's look, uh, look at verse 13. What we're going to do is this next bit's pretty confusing to read it. So, I thought we would, um, just to understand it visually, I thought we'd get our wonderful host up. Come on, give him a round of applause. Come on, everyone. Come on, give him a round of applause. Actually, come stand just here. Come stand here, right, so everyone can see. All right, so... Alright, this is what happens, is Joseph presents his two sons, hello, hello two sons, Um, now Joseph makes the oldest, Manasseh, go under Jacob's right hand, okay, and he makes the younger go towards Jacob's left hand, alright, but what Jacob does is he's like trolling them and he decides to go the other way and Joseph, he's like, what are you doing Jacob, what are you doing, you got it all the wrong way. And Jacob says, no, I know what I'm doing. Okay, thanks, guys. Give him a round of applause. Give him a round of applause. I just thought it's way easier to explain visually, right? So why, what's going on there? Why is that significant? Well, it's because the right hand is the most important or the more important than the left hand, okay? You often hear the thing, um, Jesus sits at the right hand of God. It's because Jesus is the most important. Effectively, that the right hand is the most important. So the custom is that the oldest child gets double. We just talked about that. And yet what Jacob does is he switches them over, right? He puts his right hand on the younger. He's making the younger more important. Now, this is controversial, right? Scandalous. Joseph, he's not happy. He's like, Dad, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're messing everything up. It's, you know what it's like? Who's, um, who's had an 18th birthday this year? Who's turned 18? Come on. Who has? Oh, someone has oh yeah a couple of people have good 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 okay just picture this right it's your 18th birthday it's your 18th birthday and you're like yes 
I'm going to get seriously good haul of presents this year. And so you wake up, you're excited, your mum walks in. Okay, mum walks in. You can tell she's got an absolute winner present right there, right? And so you're like, yeah, yeah, give me a present. Imagine, though, she walks right past you and gives it to your younger sister or your younger brother, right? Imagine that happened, right? That is just like, you feel so dogged. Like, that is not, that is not on mum. Like, what's wrong with you, Okay. That's kind of what's happened here, right? That's what's happened. Joseph's like, you got this all wrong. So why is Jacob doing this? We've got actually a really good reason. He's actually trying to teach Joseph something. He's showing that it's not humans that decide who God chooses. He's showing that it's not humans who decide who God chooses. Humans aren't in charge. God is. And God has decided to choose the weak, the lesser, not the strong and most important. And this is something that happens time and time again all throughout the Bible. God chooses the weak. He chooses the lesser. So think about it. Just with Jacob and Esau, right? God, even before they were born and Jacob did all that shady stuff, God says to Rachel, says, hey, the younger is going to serve, the younger is going to be greater than the older. Again, he's choosing the weaker one. King David, you've heard of him, hopefully. He had six older brothers, maybe seven. I should have checked that. Anyway, he has six older brothers, and yet God chooses him to be the man after his own heart, to be the, the greatest king of Israel. You also see it in how God often chooses uh, couples that can't have children to be the ones who take his promise forward. So Abraham and Sarah... They can't have children. Isaac and Rebecca also can't have children. Even, I don't know if you remember, Jacob and Rachel couldn't have children. God keeps choosing them. And he does it for a really good reason. Why? The verse is going to come up here, 1 Corinthians 1, which tells us why. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. God is showing people that he is the one who decides things. He is the one who makes things happen, not humans. Now this is really important when we come to thinking about, it applies to so many things, but particularly for our salvation, right? Heaven or hell. Is big. Our world thinks that if you know you rely on yourself, uh, you be the best person you can be, do do good, do more good than you do bad. Hopefully, then you will be in heaven uh, when you die. That's what generally what our world thinks. But you know what that is? Boasting. That's relying on yourself. That's saying, I can get to heaven. I am good enough to get to heaven. That's boasting before God. It's showing that your anchor is yourself. Your faith is in yourself. And so God is teaching us through the story of Manasseh and Ephraim and all these other things all throughout the Bible that God is the one who chooses. When it comes to salvation, God chooses. It's not about you. He's the one who has given you faith. No one in heaven is going to rock up there and say, guys, I got here. I got here. I did it. I did really well as well. I'm, uh, yeah, I know. 
thank you, thank you very much. I made it here to heaven. No one's going to be doing that. No one is going to be boasting. People are going to be saying, I don't deserve to be here. But God got me here. He worked it out for me. He gave me faith in his son. He gave me his spirit. God chooses so that no one can boast. So don't anchor your life on yourself. Don't put your faith in yourself, in your own life, but especially for your salvation. Don't put your anchor on yourself. Your anchor's got to be, your faith has got to be in God. All right, that's the first one. That was to Joseph, that God chooses the weak. The second is to Reuben. This is kind of moving into chapter 49 now. Jacob gathers the rest of his sons, the other 11 sons, and he speaks of them oldest to youngest, goes one after the other, and he starts with his firstborn, Reuben. Look at verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honour, excelling in power. And remember, it's the custom here that he should receive the double portion of the inheritance because he's the best. Right? The firstborn is the best, as it says there. And yet, we just saw it, didn't we? He doesn't get it. Son number 11 gets it. Why? Was it because Joseph was the golden child? Well, no. Look at verse 4. There's something more to it. Jacob continues, Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Jacob is here talking about when Reuben slept with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. So that's the mother of Dan and Naphtali, two of his other brothers. Reuben slept with his mother-in-law. You can, it's a verse in Genesis 35. That is messed up. That is some serious lack of self-control. And I think... What we should really take away from this is that failing to be self-controlled has some pretty big consequences. Very big. I mean, the immediate consequences would have been pretty bad, right? I mean, Dad, Jacob, he would have been furious. Some seriously awkward dinner table conversations, like very awkward dinners for the next little while. But, you know, after a few years, hopefully it smooths over. Time heals all wounds, you know, that kind of thing. Well, sorry, sorry, Reuben, But over 40 years later, right, this is over 40 years after it happens, this one uncontrolled act would still be coming back to bite Reuben. And that's what it does here. And with the worst possible consequence, he loses his right of firstborn. He loses the double portion. Again, he loses his 18th birthday present. This is serious business. And it's not just bad for Reuben, Reuben himself. Because remember... Jacob is acting as God's prophet. He's telling what's going to happen to Reuben and his family. And Reuben's family, just like what he said here, you'll no longer excel. Reuben's descendants, they really become nobodies. You don't really hear much about them. They're kind of, you know, has-beens. Sin has lasting consequences. And the same thing happens with Jacob's second and third born, Simeon and Levi. And their sin was even more evil. They killed all the men in a town as an act of revenge. Now that is seriously wicked and evil. And Jacob tells them in the next few verses that neither of them will get an inheritance in the land. Sin has lasting consequences. More More than they could imagine at the time when they did it. 
But I'm going to focus on Reuben here because his sin of sexual immorality is much more likely for us than killing spree. I hope, right? I hope no one goes on a killing spree here. Um, Sexual immorality has lasting consequences. Consequences that we can't fully imagine or see now when it happens, but that will be so painful and destructive in the future. That's really what I want to um, talk about. I'm going to talk about three. I'm going to go through them pretty quick. Three different sexual sins. The first is having an affair. I know not all of you are married in here, but it's really important that we talk about it. I don't have to tell you, I think, how long a lasting consequences are uh, for, for affairs. For those who are married, you need to guard your marriage. Now, there's lots of ways you can do this. I could talk about heaps of them, but I want you to think just right now about one that's very fitting in light of what we just talked about, about uh, not relying on ourselves, not having ourselves as the anchor. How often do you pray for your marriage? How often do you pray for your spouse? How often do you ask God's help and God's blessing on your marriage? Is your anchor in your marriage God, or is it does your lack of prayer potentially show that maybe your anchor is elsewhere when it comes to your marriage? You need God's help. So that's the first thing, affairs. The second one is uh, sex before marriage. Now, this one is super easy to justify, right? We love each other. We're committed to each other. We're engaged. What's the point of waiting? Well, not only does God command that sex is for marriage within marriage, the research also confirms this. Apparently, when people live together, i.e. sleep together, before getting married, they have a much higher chance of their marriage breaking down, which is really sad. And it's interesting thinking, why, why is that the case? It's not a coincidence. And I'm sure researchers have their theories, but mine, here's mine, mine is that uh, the couple didn't practice self-control. They didn't practice self-control. And self-control is so important in marriage. We just talked about affairs, right? And self-control is one of the key things you need to guard your marriage. And if you don't practice self-control before getting married, then you're not preparing to guard your marriage. You're not preparing to practice self-control when you are married. You'll be more, uh, more controlled by your desires, more willing to compromise than if you don't practice it. So that's the second one, sex before marriage. The third one is pornography. Now, the more research that comes out about the effects of pornography on your brain, the, the worse it is, the worse you find out. It desensitizes your brain so that you don't or that you will not enjoy sex as much with your spouse. That's what all the research is saying. It makes your spouse feel like trash. It means that there is less trust in your relationship. And you might be thinking, oh, that's okay, I'm not married yet, I'm a long way from being married. But remember remember Reuben's sin? Sin has lasting consequences that you don't know at the time. Porn creates patterns of thinking in your brain that are so, so hard to change, so hard to undo. That's why it's addictive. It's enslaving pornography. And they're patterns of thinking that marriage doesn't fix, Things don't get fixed as soon as you get married if you're struggling with pornography. If you're addicted to porn before marriage, you'll still be addicted to it afterwards, during it. And it also has generational consequences 
like Reuben's sin did. Think about it. When you become a dad or a mum and you're struggling with porn, still struggling with porn, how likely do you think it is that you will be um, able and willing to talk to your children about the dangers of pornography when you yourself are still struggling with it? I think it's highly likely we be too ashamed to talk to them about and to educate them and what might happen to them then. Guys, sin has lasting consequences. That's what we learn from Jacob's final words to Reuben. So friends, do not anchor your lives on seeking pleasure, on seeking your desires, on uh, having, having intimacy with another person, whether that's a Uh, wife, husband, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is. Don't anchor your life on these things because there'll be lasting consequences if you anchor your life on your desires, on on sin. And if you are struggling with pornography, which is probably a lot of us in this room, okay? if you are struggling, then please, 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 please tell someone tonight. At very minimum close Christian friend, send them a message tonight saying, hey, can we catch up this week to chat about something? Send that message. Start the domino because you cannot, you cannot beat pornography by yourself. You just can't. Please do that tonight. Sin has lasting consequences. Don't anchor your life on desires, on pleasures. Okay, number three. Jacob's last words to Judah. Now, who here has heard of Stephen Bradbury? Hands up. Who knows that name, Stephen Bradbury? A few people. A lot of the older people in the room, potentially. That's okay. It's okay. Uh, now, I'll tell you who he is. He's a, he was a sprint ice skater. A sprint ice skater. He, um, he represented Australia at the Fair Few Winter Olympics. And in the 2002 Winter Olympics, let me, let me paint the scene, right? He makes it to the gold medal race. There's four, three or four other skaters in the gold medal race. A thousand metres, right, just going around and around in a circle for a thousand metres. It's riveting stuff. Anyway, so what's going on is that no one, right, no one in Australia has ever won a gold medal at the Winter Olympics. And in fact, no one in the Southern Hemisphere has ever won a gold medal at the Winter Olympics, right? And they're doing this race. They're going round and round. It's like... Stephen Bradbury keeps going further and further behind, right? And the the three people at the front, they're like all tussling and trying to get first. And literally, very last corner, the three who are at the front, way way further in front of Stephen Bradbury, they they jostle each other and all three of them fall over. All three of them fall over. And Stephen Bradbury just chills and skates for us straight by, wins gold. The first gold ever for anyone in the Southern Hemisphere. It's like a classic moment, right? Remember the name, Stephen Bradbury. Anyway, what's I got to do with this? Well, guys, Reuben, firstborn, he's fallen over, right? Simeon, Levi, same thing, they've fallen over. Who comes skating past? Judah. Judah's like, winner, guys, I'm first. So let's have a look. Let's see what happens. What does is, what is Jacob promise to Judah? Here we go, verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. 
Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Sounds pretty good, right? Judah might not have gotten the double portion, the right of the firstborn that Joseph did, but he's still going to be the big dog, right? He will be the strongest son. He will defeat his enemies. He'll be like a lion, victorious. And because of this, he'll be the most important, the most revered son, right? His brothers will praise him and bow down to him. But the most exciting part of this blessing is verse 10. Have a look. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. What's that talking about? What's a scepter? Well, let me show you. Elizabeth comes to help us again. You can see here, this is kind of a a picture, not a photograph picture, of what she wore at her coronation, right, when she was sworn in. Uh, And as you can see, she's holding a scepter. A scepter is the staff of a ruler. And so, it's the staff of a king. And so, it says here that the scepter will not depart from Judah. In other words, King Judah, not King Julian, okay? Everyone loves King Julian, right? King Judah. Now, Judah wasn't a king, and he never, never became a king. He would have died. And there wasn't a human king in Israel, God's people, for many, many years. But when the time came for a human king to rule God's people, which tribe were they from? Judah. Apart from the first one, who didn't go so well. He was from Benjamin. Judah. King David, he picked up that scepter from between Judah's feet, as it says. He was the one whom it belonged to, just as the blessing said. And the obedience of the nations was his. No one could stand against him. And every king, sorry, every king after David and Solomon's rule, uh, they started to struggle a bit though. So David, Solomon was the high point, but then it kind of went downhill from there. The nations started not obeying King Judah, the king from Judah. In fact, even people within God's people stopped listening and obeying the king of Judah. And after the Babylonians came in and destroyed them all and took them into exile, it was as if the scepter had departed from Judah. And so the Israelites were waiting and waiting for the one to whom the scepter belonged, as it says, who would raise them up and rule them and all the nations too and rescue them. And this coming king became known as the Christ, the Messiah. That's who everyone was waiting for. And then eventually, 2,000 years ago, the Christ arrives. The man born from the tribe of Judah, Jesus. This was predicting Jesus all the way back in Genesis 49. And when Jesus arrives, he starts preaching. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. Now the kingdom of God has come near because the king has come near, Jesus. People were starting to join the dots too. They're like, oh yeah, Jesus must be the Christ. They start calling him the Christ. The fulfillment of this prophecy from so many years ago. He's going to be the one who holds the scepter forever. And then he dies. And people who had put their anchor in him were devastated, right? If you lose your anchor, you just you have no idea what you're going to do with your life. The man that anchored their lives and hopes on had failed. 
But then he rose again. Woo! And will never die. So now the scepter will never depart from him. He will rule forever as king. And the, the obedience of the nations will be his forever. And one day this king will return, guys. And as the king, he will judge all those who have not obeyed him. Who have not listened to him or put their faith in him as the king, as their anchor. And he will judge them with everlasting destruction. But those who have put their faith in him, their confidence in him, who have King Jesus as the anchor for their life, they will live in his perfect kingdom forever. Heaven. It's such good news. So, that's the blessings to Jacob, to Reuben, and to Judah. So where's your anchor, guys? Where's your anchor? What are you putting your faith in in this life? Now, there are many things we can celebrate about Queen Elizabeth, right? Read this book if you want before you go home from church tonight. You'll see some of the things we can celebrate about her. And it's very sad that she's no longer with us. But you know what's so exciting? Is that she's now with her king. She is now in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, with her king, in perfect bliss in heaven, never to grow old or die again. Because, it's all because her anchor, her faith was in King Jesus. That quote again that I said at the start, for me, the life of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, whose birth we celebrate today, is an inspiration and an anchor in my life. What's your anchor? Is it yourself? Is it your desires? Is it your pleasures? Is it another person? Or is it the one thing, the one person who will never let you down, who will never fail, who has died and risen again never to die and who will rule forever? Is your faith in King Jesus? Guys, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for uh, Jacob and his faith in you and the way that he blessed all his sons in light of his faith in you. Thanks for what it teaches us. Father, we pray that we will not anchor our lives on ourselves, that we will trust in you to get us to heaven. We pray that we will not anchor our lives on our desires, on pleasure that has lasting consequences. Father, we ask that you will help us to anchor our lives on your Son, the King, Jesus, who has died and risen again so that we might enjoy eternity in his kingdom forever. Help us to anchor our lives in him. Amen.